It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it, like disaster. This week on The Stack, we speak to Winter Dusrin, who had bitcoins, a thousand dozen but hodled not, and found faster ways to have fun staying poor when he ought to be a decamillionaire, but then found ways to get rich anyway. We talk about buying and selling the early days of Bitcoin, how one could get conned, what's good to drink in India and elsewhere, and the art of aping into whatever the hell your bros are buying. Let's put a foot in that stream that's never quite the same one twice. Benzos is what killed Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. His 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 whole story, I mean, is, is just riddled with lies. I mean, did you guys see his interview that he did, like after he supposedly like recovered with his daughter and all that stuff? No, I I can't uh, bear to. Oh, I man. can't so, I can't watch that guy either. It's just awful. So he so he says right that he got this like minimal dose of of Xanax, and he claims to have never taken more than the prescribed dose. And he claims to have gotten like basically some kind of weird reaction to it, but that he couldn't stop, couldn't quit. Benzos are a bitch to quit. That that's true. But he must have been uh, taking abuse quantities. And the dose he said he was on is like nothing. I know these drugs. I mean, I've never been an addict to that stuff or any or any other substance. But I know these drugs very very well. Um, the dose he was on is a very very small amount. So I think I think his daughter abuse. his daughter was grinding them up. And putting them in his like food. Yeah, that it sounds, wouldn't surprise me. Honestly, that sounds right. Surprise me. Yeah, he was snorting. He was uh, grinding up lobster and snorting it as well. I think. Right, lobster. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, Does that work? The uh, yeah. So works, waifu man. waifu is up. Yeah. Again, waifu is up again. Uh, I know. Winter I... Winter is gonna gonna tell us tell us what you did to your eternal shame. Uh, you mean selling the waifu? Selling the waifu. You know, I gave up on the waifu at a loss. I had I had like 1.3 million waifu. Um, <laughs> and look, everything I give up on, it 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 moons, 100% guaranteed. So basically, I charge like a 20%. I'm sort of like a hedge fund. I don't actually do anything for you, but I sell stuff, and you got to give me 20% of the profits. Does that that sounds sense? fair. Yeah, it, it sounds it fair. Definitely sounds good. Every time you yeah, sell um, stuff, I'm I'm up like 150 percent, so that's pretty good math. It's pretty epic. But Winter, <laughs> you've been you've been in crypto for certainly longer longer than I have. I mean, you're you're an OG buying it for a dollar, right? So you you must be like a billionaire. Uh well, I I probably could be could have been, but no, I'm not. I'm not even anywhere close. Uh, let me let me tell you how I got into crypto because I think it's probably an interesting story. Do, do either of you guys know the computer scientist uh, who goes by Gwern online, G-W-E-R-N? Sure. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay, okay. So way back in like uh, 2011, I think, he. so he's got a blog, and I, I think he's still on occasion posts there. He's, he's, he's like relatively inactive. Yeah, but he's got a Reddit. He's got a subreddit, I think, dedicated to him now or something like that that he shows up yeah, in. And he's always been one of Reddit's best posters. When he was active, like you could just like search Reddit for Gorn. And yeah, um, he, he back usually, when Reddit was okay, worth reading. Yeah, 
Yeah. I don't know if he still posts stuff, but I'm sure it's still good. Um, I think he's, he's still there in his own subreddit, I think. I, I may be wrong, but I think so. He got anyway. blocked by Twitter? Uh, no, he locked. He, he's private. And like, I'm not uh, okay, account. okay, okay. Uh, he all right, let all me right. follow him, um, but I'm not in there now. But anyway, um, so he wrote a post on how to use Silk Road 1. And I, I Say that again? How do, you, how do you do how what? Do you, how do you use Silk Road? Oh, how to use Silk Road, okay. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys remember, like Silk Road was yeah. the first major like uh, darknet market, and he also had a bunch of posts like self experimentation on uh, on nootropics, which is basically like PEDs, performance enhancing drugs for work. And this was a right. big interest of mine back then. So he was big into like modafinil, which is mm. you know something that I still use on occasion if if work. Uh, for for our kind of like normie listeners, we're talking about um, mentally enhancing, gen generally speaking, m enhancing mental capabilities, yeah. right? Exactly, exactly. So Mike Cernovich stuff. Yeah, modafinil is a drug that was designed for uh, narcoleptics to take. And it's kind of a cool one because it's it's not a stimulant, but it just makes you like not sleepy, which is good because if, if any of you have tried like a stimulant like Adderall or something, that that at least for me makes me jittery and actually interferes with my work productivity. But modafinil is just kind of helps me get through the sleepiness and do my work better. Um, but anyway, he, so he had his post about how you can buy stuff online and I hadn't heard of Bitcoin until I read his post on Silk Road and his post explained uh, like PGP encryption, how to use Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin? So then I started reading a bunch of stuff about Bitcoin. Um, so really it's scoring that got me into it. I bought 550 Bitcoin at, I think, around five bucks each. Okay. Um, so that was probably like, I don't have the charts in front of me, but some like in 2011, I think Bitcoin was between like $1 and $20 that whole year. It was going up and down. Um, so, like, we could do how, that. How could, you, how could you buy it? How at that time? Because there's not like, you know, Coinbase or whatever. Oh, like, yeah. How, so, how did you buy it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. Like, basically, there were various like peer to peer markets. And at the time, I was uh, splitting time between uh, between Singapore and, and Europe. So I had a I had a place in a European city. So I happened to be in Europe at the time, and uh, there was like a European like peer to peer. There was absolutely like no controls at all. It's basically like people posting buy sell. Uh, so basically, I made a wire transfer on faith to like some guy in uh, Scandinavia or something in euros. And he sent me the, the Bitcoin, uh, no issues. And I, I've made a number of buys peer to peer that way with, without a, without a problem. Um, I hadn't considered too much like the investment potential of Bitcoin. I'll come on to it a bit, like the various phases in which I realized this was a good investment. And, you know, depending on how much you want to hear, I can tell you all the phases, but, you know, at first it was really just a tool, uh, to, to order modafinil and stuff like that. And I thought it was cool. Uh, so, so yeah, that was my first Bitcoin. So 550 Bitcoin, you know, today would be worth, what is that? Like 25 million? Am I, do I have that wrong? That sounds, sounds like a not good. a math podcast, but yeah. 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 Sounds but good. Anyway, 25 million. It's a, lot, it, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And um, so over the years, I, I over the years that followed, I think between 2011 and 2013, um, uh, you know, I bought Bitcoin to to use it, and uh, that that I did. And then I think in 2013 or so, there was like the Cyprus crisis. Yeah, 
had its yeah. first major pop. And I think that I had, I think in one day I had something like an 18,000 US dollar gain in Bitcoin. And that felt like a lot of money. Uh, so I sold it and I was like, wow, uh, I'm going out for, for steak and, and $500 bottle of wine or something like that. Right. Um, uh, so just think about how stupid that is, obviously, in retrospect. But I was just thinking like, yeah, it'll come back down to five bucks or whatever, and I can I can buy Bitcoin again. So it hadn't like really sunk in that I should be like holding the Bitcoin. And I wasn't really like plugged into the, the sphere generally, like anybody online. I had no real online relationships. Um, I had read some posts saying like, yeah, the government will ban Bitcoin, so... It's going to zero. And that I know that Gwern had made a prediction that it's going to be 50K in 10 years or something. Um, and you guys can look into that one. And I kind of took the side of, you know, that it probably wouldn't be. Anyway, fast forward a, a, a couple of years, a few years, I think 2014 or 2000, yeah, 2013 and 14, there were two peaks in Bitcoin. Like uh, I think they peaked around 12 to $1,500. Uh, and there was a lot of volatility in there. And I have experience in financial services. I know about market making. And there were, there was empty Gox back then. And there was like some shady Eastern European exchanges, but they were really unreliable. Like you, you could wire money and like never get anything back. Empty Gox, sometimes you couldn't withdraw fiat from. Um, so what I, what I actually worked out is I could market make Bitcoin uh, and make a ton of money just by doing the bid ask spread on Bitcoin. Um, and again, so I knew it was by that point, I knew it was like a, a good investment, but I kind of was like, oh, well, the banks, they don't make money off buying and holding. They, you know, they make money off the bid ask, bid ask spread. So why don't I just do that? And that was a, that was a wild business. I had contacts through like a video game shop manager or something in Singapore who had contacts with Chinese miners. And basically every day I'd kind of collect orders from various ads that I'd have online and I'd then back off the orders and block buys to the miners. And depending on where I was, like if I was in Europe, I could often make 20% spread. In Singapore, the spreads were tighter. Like it could be like three to three to seven percent. If people wanted like esoteric coins, like I, I also dealt in altcoins and stuff, so I could I could make those happen too. I had, I did have some working accounts on Eastern European exchanges and there were like normie light kind of people who were buying this stuff and they had no idea how to get it done. So I was doing cash transactions and closing the book every day. So I don't know how many, bit, I, you know, I don't know how many Bitcoins passed through my hands, but it had to be thousands, thousands and thousands of Bitcoins. So you just think about that. It's like, if I had just, just stopped doing trading one day, right. And just hold right i wouldn't wouldn't be a wage cuck today but here we are you wouldn't be talking to us here well i might still be talking to you but it'd be talking about my yachts and my islands and stuff what are some are there any like of those altcoins from that time that stand out as like having survived yeah so litecoin i mean i i, I wish i could remember the prices but litecoin i was probably in litecoin like in the single digits, right? Um, uh, Ethereum, I think, existed in 14. Maybe I'm wrong. I, but Litecoin, I definitely remember buying. There was a lot of demand for, for something called Namecoin, which I don't know if it still exists. I think it's a probably deprecated or dead project, but 
Um, people would sometimes want me to get them Namecoin. Trying to think, there was Ripple, although I never, I never bought or sold any Ripple. Um, so even it was a shit coin even then. It was a shit coin even then. Yeah, it, there was a lot of skepticism ab about it. The the business was interesting because uh, I mean ultimately there was a few there was a few reasons why I stopped. Okay, one was I just started building up too much cash, and you can only carry like a certain amount of cash across international borders at a time. And I basically had emptied out my bank accounts in Asia of fiat because of the, the spreads with Europe. So I had like, I wish I still had a photo of the cash. We, you could make it your, you know, your podcast background or something for this episode. But like, I had this photo of, of just like piles of British pounds on the floor of my flat. And, yeah. and uh, it was, that was a bit awkward. You know what I mean? Like, like, what do you do with that exactly? Um, you just you wait around for some for somebody to to make you and then you know take you hostage in your own apartment yeah yeah pretty much pretty much i also i also nearly got arrested in singapore uh, not for anything i did uh, buying and selling bitcoin is, is not illegal but i was the victim of a man in the middle fraud uh, i don't know if you guys know what that is you can enlighten us yeah so that'd be like where somebody in the middle kind of represents both the buyer and the seller to the real buyer and the seller. Um, so this guy uh, made an ad for like a discounted cruise to Malaysia or something. I don't know, it was something like a cruise. And he was kind of saying like, yeah, if you wire me like two grand or whatever it was or three grand uh, by a certain time, you get this like discounted trip. And then to me, he was pretending he's a buyer of Bitcoin in that quantity. And then he gave my bank details, or actually my wife's bank details, to the buyer of the cruise. The buyer of the cruise wires me the money. I I send him the Bitcoin because I think it's a legit transaction. And then the 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 victim of the fraud. Well, we were both victims, but the victim of the fraud then thought that I defrauded uh, her out of the cruise because she sent money to my wife. Of course, it's her. Of course, it's her yeah. buying the discounted cruise right no it isn't I, I i actually so i actually did the sleuthing so the thing was like i was actually in thailand when this sh shit went down they the police picked my wife up uh at work <laughs> took her down to the station i was you know i was in thailand so she was like she never heard of morning. bitcoin she does not she know was, what you've been doing all these years she called me like 20, <laughs> 27 times before i woke up and then uh so she calls me and she's like crying she's like i met the police they're asking questions. I don't know what's going on. So anyway, I, I talked to the police. Uh, they told me, uh, well, they didn't actually really know what the crime was. They were like, did you, you know, say to sell this like cruise or something? I was like, no. And I told them like, you know, I'm coming back in a couple of days. Is it okay? Like, you can you send my wife home? I'll come to this down to the station for a uh for an interview or whatever you need uh, when I come back. And they said, yeah, that's cool. So it was fine. They, they let my wife go and I went in but in between like when i found out what happened i did a, i had to do a lot of work to kind of even like decode what went on because the police they were they were unhelpful in a sense that they just assumed it was what it seemed and that makes no sense at all like given my personal context like why would i be defrauding someone out of like two grand but i was able to to get this site called Local Bitcoins, which I think is closed now, but that was a site for doing hand-to-hand -hand cash Bitcoin transactions. I was. Uh, I don't get... know if it. I don't know if they. I don't know if they like transmogrified, but now you have local cryptos, which is is kind of the same thing. Yeah. So they were 
they were willing to, once I, I actually had the police uh, send me a, an email about the investigation, on the basis of an email from the cops, they were willing to actually disclose the IP address of the person who did the middle and the man in the middle. And I found out like where he was uh, for like the last like 45 days. I also found some Bitcoin forums in Singapore uh, talking about other people who had like other people were complaining, having been defrauded by this person. Um, and he went by a few different aliases, a few different phone numbers. So anyway, I had all this stuff. I went down to the police station and I said, look, you know, I got this stuff from local Bitcoins. These IP addresses don't match up my travel schedule. They don't match up. You know, he had been at some hotels in Singapore and stuff like that. He had been hotels Fucking in Hong Kong and stuff like that. You know, all kinds Jordan of Peterson, man. That guy, fucking, yeah. fucking Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Probably. He's everywhere. He's everywhere, man. He's a drug what, addict. Um, <laughs> so you, did you get to go Batman on this guy or what? Um, did they just take it from there? Well, it was, yeah, it was weird. I mean, the, it was weird. The cop was like, oh, well, it doesn't look like he's in Singapore, so we can't do anything. And I was like, okay, does that mean like that I'm good? And he's like, well, you know, we can't comment on your status The, you know, whatever it is, like the state prosecutor will review the case based on our recommendations <laughs> and we'll get back to you. So they've frozen my wife's bank account, by the way. Right. Like if, if, if it were my accounts that were frozen, like, I don't, well, of course she's going account. around selling fake cruises. Wait, exactly. Gotta exactly. Shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Now her accounts don't matter, but mine would have caused us like, let's just say a liquidity crisis. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but anyway, like, Two and a half years later, I got a letter from the police saying that I'd been uh, formally cleared of involvement in, in that case. Um, so it sat around like for two years and then my wife's bank account was unfrozen like two and a half years later. Um, was, she able got, to, was she able to open new bank accounts in the meantime? Uh, yes, she did. She opened uh, new accounts at another bank. Okay. Um, and yeah, not, not, not a big deal, but it's actually quite lucky that I had been using my wife's bank account for, for Bitcoin dealing for, we're sort for, of like, for different reasons. We're, we're inadvertently, uh, we're inadvertently like, uh, teaching people how to do international crime right now. It's full, full service podcast, basically. Um, don't make the mistakes. Don't make the mistakes that this, you know, cruise, cruise guy did. Um, yeah, but it sounds, it sounds like that you can actually pull off a man in the middle uh, scam and then just go back to Singapore or wherever and open up another bank account. This is great information. I, I find this very useful. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm going to start a, I'm going to start a cruise. Uh, you can't see me doing the air quotes, but I will be starting a cruise company now. Does the provenance of Bitcoin not matter? Cause like, uh, when there are big things like that Twitter hack last year, they talk about sort of like putting, parts of the chain on like a blacklist or something so they can't be used on exchanges or anything maybe i'm getting that wrong but it because you you can say that there's some like dirtier bitcoin than others yeah so that's the i think uh somebody online called that the uh blood diamond attack on bitcoin where like in theory a government like the u.s could make a list of blacklisted bitcoin addresses and they could either say like okay from now on you can't transact with those addresses or like any coins that ever visited those addresses are quote unquote illegal or illicit or something like that. Yeah, this happens on exchanges, doesn't it? So for instance, um, I assume that Coinbase, for instance, 
is probably required to blacklist certain Bitcoin addresses. I'm I'm spitballing here. I don't know this for sure, but I'm quite certain well, that there are exchanges that that blacklist addresses. They probably do, but it's probably pursuant to a specific cr criminal investigation. When when people are talking about the blood diamond attack, they're they're talking about something much broader than that, where they might be like kind of saying like, okay, everything that's not Coinbase or something, right? We're going to assume you're a tax evader. Uh, look, if they if they know that, let's say like whoever uh, hacked Coinbase and took, let's say, like 100 million bucks worth of coins, put it in some address, and they tell all the exchanges not to deal with that address. That, to me, isn't the blood diamond attack on crypto as a whole. That's just like law enforcement investigation of a theft of Bitcoin. And that actually protects Bitcoin's value. Like if law enforcement treats Bitcoin as property and they'll go and get it back for you, Right. Which which wasn't the case, by the way. You know, I won't go into more details on the other stuff, but I mean, I had Bitcoin stolen from me as well. And I had police reports on that as well. And um, uh, the police were not interested in investigating crimes involving theft of Bitcoin, like, let's say, 2013 time frame, because they didn't understand it. So to, to my mind, like a blood diamond attack is like, how do you mess with crypto uh, users and owners by broadly? Because someone could find themselves in possession of Correct. Bitcoin that is retroactively, they say, no, this is yes. illicit. And by, by merely owning it, yes. you're committing a crime or transacting exactly. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a much broader thing. Like, like what if but I that, get a, you know, I, whatever's in my treasure today, like, you know, all of a sudden it's right. listed for what reason? But the, right? the Bitcoin itself is, I mean, this is, this is, I guess, I don't, I don't actually know this, but it's, it's totally fungible in the, in the sense that one Bitcoin is the same as another Bitcoin is tracked by the wallet, right? Or, or am I incorrect about that? No, it's, it, they're, they're fungible. All the Bitcoin are the same, but, but all Bitcoin have a history. Um, now, the data set gets huge, and, and I personally don't think that Blood Diamond is ever going to happen. Um, but, but I mean, can, it, can, can you say that one sat is... You know, this you can track this SAT to uh, like a given address or no? I don't. I don't even know. Well, the this. problem the problem is is I, at least because um, okay, uh, this ends up in those like asset forfeiture cases, um, and so the the position of the um, U.S. government is that all dollars are fungible, and therefore any money that you have is uh, could just as like, let's say you made $10,000 from a crime. Uh, they don't know which of your $1 million is that $10,000. Yeah. And so you have forfeited the entire $1 million. And so yeah. this, this comes up a lot in um, and fr frankly, it's a miscarriage of justice in my opinion, but th that is, basically because it, it's used as a tool to prevent people from being able to hire lawyers and everything like that and then it, you know if you ever say anything about it then you get this like you know oh so you support terrorists and drug dealers or whatever but um uh, yeah you, you know, get the it, same with, thing with bitcoin really a, a, exactly so so um so th that would be the legal theory i guess i mean it's interesting i mean bitcoin is a lot of different things to a lot of different people sometimes the same thing. I don't think it's really like an, a tool of anarchy or anything, but there is an element of it, at least to me, that is saying that, you know, these sorts of systems like the asset forfeiture 
or, um, you know, whatever kind of global regulatory regime that the U.S. government can have is not exactly legitimate, right? Yeah, totally. And of, of course, um, there's sorry. Oh, I was going to I was going to say there is another way, um, which is that I, I think what you do is um, you take your your ill gotten gains and then you can actually you can wash your Bitcoin basically through what's it called a tornado or something like that. You know what I'm talking about where you take Bitcoin let's say that you do a yeah, yeah, yeah. But you and they have these they have these um, system, I, I think it's something like a tornado. But anyway, you 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 run the run the Bitcoin through it. And it comes out the other side without knowing which wallet it was in previously you know like say you say you hack so you know that that's what the the smarter hackers do they take they hack kucoin for a billion dollars and then um if they're quick enough they run that through uh these cleaners that that basically um well that that disconnect that would make it right It, it would make it computationally prohibitively expensive to figure out what had happened yeah, that's that's probably right. But what yeah, I'm saying is yeah. that that the the attachment of a Bitcoin to a wallet, it seems to me that that it's it's trivially trivially easy to blacklist a wallet, but not trivially easy to blacklist a Bitcoin. Because yeah, I agree. In, th- Unless you have like in theory, you could one a one to one. Right. It's like yeah, it came. This this one came directly from that wallet, which we know belongs to whatever the a hacker, something like that. I agree. It's very difficult to. To, to, to prove that and it's it the blood diamond attack concept uh, assumes that an arbitrary seizure or or blacklisting of bitcoin assets would be enforced by the courts which i'm really not sure that it would be if they tried it so this is what i'm i'm wondering is i think and i could be wrong about this but it's it seems to me that the way that it's done is you have 50 of whatever coin in the wallet and then it's the wallet that's trackable as well as the balance but not the individual satoshi or whatever right and so if you can move if you can if you can somehow disconnect the satoshi from the wallet then you're pretty well clear i don't know if this is the case but it seems to me that that is the way to sort of get around get around being tracked with with uh cryptocurrency well, I think anyway. the, big, the biggest question, the biggest question to me is going to be, all right, right now, as, as you guys know, maybe our listeners, many of them don't, but if, if you're a bank operating in the anywhere in the world and you have basically like one, either any sort of transactions in US dollars, or you have a single US citizen or green card holder cl- client account holder, then you have basically volunteered yourself to be under the entire U.S. regulatory regime. And the the question is, is now basically cryptocurrencies have been more or less in a black hole everywhere, including the U.S. And now you're starting to see, uh, I mean, the SEC has had questions and everything, but um, OCC on the banking side, but not, not really anything. So that is seeming like it's going to change and already the new uh, head of the SEC from the um, so-called Biden administration is coming in and talking about it. And I think <laughs> that the big question is like whether or not the U.S. still has the ability to go to 
like a Singapore or a Hong Kong or even like Europe and say, hey, assholes, like you've got to regulate it the way that we say you have to, the you, way that they do with banking and everything. Winter, you wince, I think. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think one reason that you live in Singapore was to, to try to escape American financial regulation, right? Uh, look, uh, you can't escape American financial regulation as such. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm here because I wanted to exit that, the American system, as much as I reasonably could while still having a good career and living in a good place. And, you know, there's pluses and minuses to the various places that people can choose to do that. So, you know, that that's the whole concept of, of exits more powerful than trying to use your voice in dissent. Um, I discovered that when I moved here, you know, Obama had passed, I think it was Obama had, had put this law in place called FATCA. And it's very difficult oh, yeah. for Americans here to get banking services. Like most banks won't even let you trade equities uh, because of the tax obligations, the reporting obligations, and basically the risks. I, I think FATCA makes banks uh, liable for the tax evasion of their customers or something like that. So I think I just muted myself out. Uh, but uh, what I was saying is the banks here or brokerages here will have a very limited in scope relationship with Americans. Would it like um, even like us? Because uh, like Citibank has a pretty major branch there. Like, w w are they even kind of standoffish with U.S. citizens? You know, they weren't. So I've been here for for a long time, double digit years. They weren't at the beginning, and then they became standoffish for real. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole range of products that they will not offer to American citizens. Uh, so there, there is that issue uh, for American banks, but the local banks too will also limit their product set for, for American citizens. So you don't, if you're an American citizen, you don't escape the reach unless you, you know, make that jump to renounce. And then, then you do escape it once you've gone through that lengthy and expensive process. Can you tell us a little bit, like, what is it? What is the renunciation process like? You know, I, th I think the rules have changed, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a there's a hold on renunciation, very convenient right now for Biden Harris. But I think there's a alleging like I don't know COVID risks or something. Um, but renunciation involves um, a couple of things. You need to have a, a a tax declaration which you send to the to the IRS, um, which is pretty complicated and involves things like itemizing everything that you own, like forks, knives, spoons level, which is like nuts. If you think about it, like how much is your sofa worth, you know, and uh, you've got to complete like a renunciation application. I forget, forget what it's called, but um, the, the process is, is paperwork heavy. You got to go to the, the consulate uh, two times. Uh, the first time you submit, they treat it as kind of like a, a warm up. And then there's a cooling off period, and then you have to do the whole process again. It's, it's kind of weird. Um, I it's, think it's I think like it's when you now, but when it, you want to divorce your wife, they make you they make you um, go to counseling so that you can think about it for a bit before Something you like get that, the actual yeah. divorce. Yeah, I want to say it's like five thousand bucks fee now. now. I spent a lot more than that in legal fees, but like um, the renunciation fee way back when was like 300 bucks or something. It was no big deal. Um, I knew a guy who renounced like after the price went up and he, he got a lawyer who told him like, if you swear allegiance to like the queen of England, you can get out of the fee or something. Uh, 
I guess it's some kind of arcanity in the U.S. law. You didn't have the right lawyer then. Well, I I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, holding a British passport, but this this guy oh, okay. was yeah. So he, I, I guess anyone could try it, but if you have a British passport, it's hard for them to kind of say like you know that you're faking it, right? So his, he was a right. dual British and American, and and when he went and did this, they like first they told him no, and then he kind of like said, well, no, it's in your law here, and he had he had a print out of it, and then they said, okay, mm. we'll think about it, and eventually they. They accepted it, so he he got out of paying the four that four or five thousand bucks or something by having a, a sworn statement saying that he swore allegiance to. But he still had to do all the tax itemization and everything. Yeah, yeah, he had to do all that stuff, but he got out of the the fee, which I thought was pretty funny. Did, uh, did you have to have Singaporean citizenship lined up though? He, I yes, I don't. You know, I offhand, I don't know if the. State Department at the U.S. allows you to renounce and become stateless. I think that that probably they wouldn't accept it. Uh, so you need to have some other citizenship uh, lined up, I think, uh, to to renounce. I'm in trouble then. I, I can't get Chinese citizenship, so do, I'm do never going to be able to get Singaporean it done. Singaporean then? Well, you know, um, not really. No, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm American. Uh, there's a difference between, you know, ethnicity, which is, which is a, a pretty holistic concept, and you know, your passport. They're not, they're not necessarily one and the same, in my opinion. I totally get this because I'm from Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> I'm from Georgia, so you know, I, I don't, I, I, I am uh, ethnically, yeah, not, no, definitely not from America. I would never, I, I'm never going to admit that. The um. When you've gone back to the U.S., do you get looks from the uh, immigration people? You know, it hasn't been too bad. I've heard some horror stories. Uh, I'll tell you, one time, you know, there was a a nice a nice black lady at the immigration counter. And she was nice, to be honest, but she just was very confused. She's like, yeah, but where's your American passport? I said, well, I don't have one. She's like, why not? Did you lose it? <laughs> I said, no, right. no. I, I told you I've renounced my citizenship. <laughs> and uh you know she was it, it it took it took a while to get through but not not because of hostility uh -oh. yeah. so no hostility no no love lost um no i i haven't i haven't experienced that i've i've heard that from other people here who who have renounced that that they've had some like mild harassment at the border but i've had no issues and i've gone in many 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 times uh, yeah. The only, I mean, like the worst stories that I hear are usually, um, actually U S citizens and particularly those like non American, sort of like, uh, foreign born U S citizens who then like live in Hong Kong when they go back and they get harassed about taxes a lot. So, you know, that, that's why when I, when I travel, like I usually like keep copies, some copies of like my tax returns and everything just to shut right. them up. Yeah, oh, I've I've gotten um, harassed as well, not for taxes, but as an American citizen, I uh, studying in Turkey for two years. I got I, my strangest story. My strangest story running back or going back to the U.S. was going through um, Amsterdam of all places. I, I went from Turkey. I was going back to the U.S. Uh, just to visit home for like a month, and um, I had been studying at a Turkish university, and I, I got pulled over by a, a Dutch fella. Said. 
what in the airport he said uh what you know what are you doing and uh, where why you've been at this university for a couple of years do you speak turkish and this kind of thing and uh, i said yeah i mean all right yeah if i'm just just been doing that he said hold on just a moment uh us homeland security wants to speak to you which is a really bizarre thing to hear in amsterdam right wait the a second the, the, law. Off yeah. the office of homeland security would like to speak with you right the guy who was in Homeland Security was a Turkish fellow, right? So he was he was Turkish, Turkish Hilarious. Homeland Security. Oh well, and and a um, Turkish American Homeland Security guy, and he came up to me and started speaking to me in Turkish because he wanted to see if my story was legitimate. I said, you know, I've been learning Turkish in 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 Istanbul for a couple of years. He wanted to hear that my story was not bullshit, so right. I made it through like. A year's worth of of Turkish. Uh, I was having this real terror talking to this guy because I thought they think no, you're going to cause a black site prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, really, I thought I thought there. I mean, because it, it what it looked like was pretty obvious, which is that I was being funded by the by ISIS, the Turkish right, something like that, right? Being you know, and money was being funneled through the Turkish government into some like. Um, Islamist university because I was going to an to an Islamic university, Avakif, right? Yeah. Uh, Avakif funded uh, Islamic university, and they thought this guy, he, you know, uh, former Marine, former right. Marine, getting getting going to uh, an an Islamic funded university, Gulenist, um, yeah, or something. Who knows? But uh, yeah, that was my worst, um, and I and I got detained in America as well, like. Uh, literally kept in entertainment for like a day. Yeah, I so mean, I, I will say ca categorically, like as someone who's like crossed a lot of borders, um, I have never had anything close to a worse experience than the U.S. Um, a Canada is bad, so like you know, those those two are like the only place that I ever get hassled. Um, Israel's not in, great in like it. Yeah. But I mean, like that's like baked in. Right. I mean, they have their yeah. own reason. And like yeah, in yeah. my I've never been there, but like, you know, I, I, I knew a guy who like traveled there on a Pakistani passport, which is illegal. And like they let him in, you know, so it's just like they're just doing their thing. Well, the thing um, for them is that everything that looks like a bomb is a bomb. So right. Exactly. Yeah. You have to bake that um, into the flying process. But like in the U.S., it's like, oh, you look tired. Like, you know, what's your problem? You know, I mean, it's just like, uh, yeah, just f bullshit. So it's kind of it, it kind of has something to do with the, the sorts of people who go into like airport homeland security jobs as well. Yeah, I mean, I think they're mostly like uh, former military. Um, who, who knows? Like DMV types. DMV types. I'm having some Chinese beer. I don't even, it doesn't even have a name. It just has a, a family crest seal, whatever you want to call it. Is it any good? For Chinese beer? Yeah. I just wouldn't, I got it from the store downstairs. It's not bad. They actually do. Qingdao is pretty good, man. That, that new, like one that they have that they claim is won all these world awards. I don't know if it has or not, but it is pretty good beer. I, I think Qingdao is fine. I am um, a business school classmate of mine. Uh, German. He studied and seemed out for like a summer or something like that. He he had nothing but good say, good things to say about the beer. Well, the base, um, I don't know what do you call it, like their 
what do you, their basic basic bitch beer, the one that is yeah. everywhere. That I think yeah. is garbage. Uh, it's not as bad as some things like what is it? Snow snow beer or whatever. Snow is bad, but like I mean, have you ever had Pearl River like in Guangzhou? No, like I that is that. it. It's literally like drink. I Terrible bought it in no? Hong Kong. You know, yeah. So like I I was in uh, 2011. I was living in Hong Kong for the summer and like. Like just in like a fifth floor walk up tenement, like I think it was like one of those illegally split up apartments, and like the the others were like Philippine prostitutes or something, and like the um. But anyway, so like I bought it was like oh here's a case of beer for like ten U.S. dollars, <laughs> so I bought it. It's like rice paste. It might have some alcohol content, but I mean it was like really really bad. So yeah, don't don't do that. Winter, oh, have you tried yeah. Chinese? Have you tried Chinese wine? You know, I uh, uh, some so somebody gave me a bottle of uh, I don't I think it was Chinese rice wine when I when I lived in Japan. Okay, and that was just I was gross. It I it was like drinking mouthwash or something. Uh, I don't know what that yeah. stuff's called. It starts with an S or something, right? The Chinese what rice wine. Yeah, like shout uh, I don't, Yeah, it probably Shoutio, depends yeah, that, on the yeah. Stuff. It was clear. It was clear, not cloudy. Yeah, the um, like so I I was stuck in Golmud in Qinghai for a couple days, and that's the literal end of the line, or it was because that's that's where they connected the the train to Tibet. Um, so it was for a long time like the literal last stop in the Chinese railroad system. And it actually is kind of prosperous because of all the money that went into building the Tibet railway. So I was stuck there and like ended up sampling a lot of the Chinese wine, like, like French style red wine, like, you know, Cabernet or whatever. And it was like, you'd buy a bottle and it would be like the same vintage from the same supposedly from the same vineyard and they would like taste nothing <laughs> nothing alike at all uh so who the hell knows what's how, going how does on it there? compare with indian wine have you guys like traveled india and had indian wine yeah i've had uh old monk rum and oh. that is cough syrup i think it was like indian army surplus rum and y- you can buy it at, at the liquor store down the street from me here now, which probably says more about like the demographics of this area. But um, where I've stayed, I, I've been to Calcutta more than anywhere. And there it actually was quite difficult to find anything to drink. Uh, I Like a couple of uh, restaurants off Park Street, which is like the main drag sort of, um, mm. would cater to, not cater to foreigners because nobody in their right mind lives there. But like the... Um, just a certain class of clientele so that you could buy a Taj Mahal beer or whatever, a uh, Kingfisher. So, but tell us about Indian wine. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's full. First off, it's just awful. It's, it's, it's like somewhere between vinegar and two euro bottle of wine that you'd get off the street in Spain or something. Um, and what I found, cause I've, I've been to India many, many, many times more, more times than I can count for you. But what I found with the, with the Westerners who live there long-term is because it's so hard to get quality wine there. There's like huge taxes on it and stuff like that. They end up going native 
And I always tell them it's like apocalypse now when I when I realize that you guys <laughs> drink like unironically they drink Indian wine to get drunk. Right. I'm like I'm like this is like this is you guys are Colonel Kurtz, right? You're you're in a new domain. You're in a new a new place. <laughs> you know you're not you're not you're not one of us anymore. You're not right, one of right. them either. Right. <laughs> you know <laughs> they'll they'll say stuff like. You'll see them, uh, you know, swirling the Indian wine in the glass and smell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, you guys have gone native, not in a good way. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, old old monk would definitely fit in that category. Um, totally. And I, I, I encourage you to try it sometime. This the, is the an Taiwan, alcohol. Yeah, podcast Taiwan. Now. Taiwan has a scot, like a uh, not a scot, but it's like a, sort of a Japanese whiskey there. That is not not too bad, but I, I imagine you've had a lot of Japanese whiskey, right? Oh yeah, tons. So I mean, I've lived in Japan. I've been there many times. Um, Japanese whiskey generally is very good. Um, I lived with some Japanese alcoholics, and uh, they introduced me to to a lot of different whiskeys there. Uh, the, the quality of alcohol there is is very good generally. Japanese alcoholic sounds redundant um, if they're working men between the age of like 25 and 60? You know, so yeah, so I lived, I lived, lived with this family, right? And so there were, there were two generations, grandparents and then, you know, parents, they had a lot of kids, which is, you know, well, this is a long time ago, but still um, their fertility rate was already pretty low back then, but it was, it was a big house, a lot of big family. And so the grandfather would drink mostly Suntory, but other Japanese whiskeys too. And he, drink after work he'd work at home uh cleaning kimonos and he'd sit down and just drink wh whiskey and water starting at about like 6 p.m 6 to 9 p.m just you know half a bottle to three quarters of a bottle a night smart guy he'd been in the war if, if we want to i can tell you war stories from world war ii pretty wild but uh then the father who who would spend more time with me than the grandfather um because closer in age and all that but he liked he liked Japanese whiskey, but he mostly drank like Jack Daniels. And even if I told him like, "Yeah, I don't feel like drinking tonight," he'd just thunk down a bottle of Jack in the middle of the table and just start pouring it. And he'd put on K One or you know one of these other like Ultimate Fight or or what's the Japanese uh, uh, on the ground fighting? I, I can't remember what what that tournament was called, but he was just into martial arts big time. And those are all great, you know. And there'd be no way of not finishing the bottle with him, you know? So the minimum was a half a bottle of whiskey for me a night. Wow, geez. And, and that's what just amped up my, my alcohol tolerance to astronomical levels. Uh, well, we've, we've all done business with the Asians, the East Asians. And so uh, can tell, I'm sure that all of us can tell people horror stories about you know, having some some event that you're obligated to drink alcohol, it's not a question of of being able to say no, especially if the boss is Chinese, right? Or important person is there. I have a a, a female boss. She's like mid mid thirties, good looking woman. You know, well put together and uh, very sort of um, uh, she's 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 quiet and and well mannered uh, during normal operating hours. Uh, everyone's very deferential to her. Um, great, great lady, actually. Wonderful boss. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, once a year, New Year's, Chinese New Year comes around. And this woman puts it down 
like nothing you've ever seen. I mean, just amazing amounts of alcohol. And then everyone is expected as well to drink with her, yeah. right? And um, she's she's probably like 120 pounds wet. And so it, it goes south real quick. Um, you know, with with her, like, you know, making some some grand grandiloquent speech uh, in front of everyone and, and, you know, telling everyone how much she loves. Like, I'm talking about people. You, I mean, you know, Chinese people would never, ever yeah. and certainly not a boss to her underlings would never say, I love you guys. Right. But after <laughs> uh, after like, you know, a, a few hours of Chinese New Year, it's a completely different world of of just love and and. Um, madness yeah you won't say i love you on their deathbed but oh yeah that's right a, a bottle of baijiu um yeah my wife says uh of just sorry very quickly to to sort of explain that whole thing um especially with the older generation you you don't show emotion right with uh you know I'm, laughing is fine that sort of thing but you never you never show affection uh or o overt affection and my wife said that if uh you know, if if she ever said "I love you" to her parents, their reaction would be, "What's wrong? Are you dying?" So that's the the sort of like um, you know, but but then the alcohol comes out and uh, flows. So there you go. Do Singaporeans drink much? You know, not not a ton. Um, you can around regular New Year. Um, Chinese New Year is more like a a family thing, but. Um, I, I have had teams here that got a little bit drunk and interesting and funny um, around the Christmas New Year time, but they're not big drinkers and there's not a there's not a social life in the office here. There is between Westerners who, who kind of get on, but between locals or between locals and Westerners, it's min minimal and or kind of like forced or formal, you know, like. Yeah, that, I, that's that's I, a I lot like Hong Kong. Here. Yeah. Yeah, like Hong Kong. Yeah, if I ask my team out for drinks, yeah, they'll show up for an obligatory one or two, but they won't then make. They're like, "Are we all getting fired?" Something like that. It's it's they, it's not part of the culture, basically. Here, what's it like now? I I seem to recall that you said that office life is pretty empty now. So have they? Is everyone yeah, gone? Not everyone's gone. I mean, I've, so I've been back in the office for gosh uh, eight eight plus months, but the average attendance is probably not higher than, than 30%. Um, maybe may more like 20. I, I don't know exactly the stats, but uh, Singaporeans are pretty germaphobic. Uh, so even though most days we have zero cases or one local case, and even that I need to caveat by saying usually the local case is like a hospital worker or an asymptomatic case, which is proven to be well, it's questionable, in my opinion, we won't diverge on COVID stuff, but, you know, people who didn't get sick, you just have to question the PCR. But, you know, the risk of getting it and getting it sick here is extremely uh, limited. Uh, and yet that that germophobia kind of dominates the situation here. Yes, yeah, interesting. I My father just just went through it. So he he was they, they told him that he had COVID. And then he had to be in isolation for, I think, 10 days or something like that. And um, he didn't have a serious cough or anything like that. He just, he just sort of stayed away. And uh, I don't know. After a few days, he said he was fine. You brought up the PCR test. That's why I'm saying this is, is because uh, I, totally, I, I didn't trust it at all. 
Uh, it didn't sound like, well, I mean, I don't know. He got tested twice and, and tested positive twice. So maybe, but, um, I, I remember Elon Musk tested like three times in the same day. And he was like positive once and negative twice or positive twice, negative once. I don't know. I'm not so sure about PCR tests, I guess. They're, they're probably oversensitive. And the other thing is they can, they can trip a positive for a past infection. Um, which is obviously not relevant for like quarantining and contact tracing. Yeah. Well, and like how recently for a past infection, because, you know, especially in Asia, coronaviruses are endemic, right? And like, who knows what, what they're seeing? I mean, the whole thing is bullshit at this point. It's all fake. It's all fake. We're we're coming out strong on this podcast. I'm not saying that per se. (laughs) I'm not saying that per se, but like definitely the uh, cost of what we're doing. I'm not even talking about financial cost. I mean, like the cost in human life of the approach that has been taken is surely greater than whatever has been saved is, is my opinion. I mean, yeah, I, I was I feel like I gotta be okay clear with now. taking it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I have to be clear now, which is that I, I do take it very seriously because like I, I talked about it once on the podcast, I had an aunt who died, but I mean, she was, she she was like advanced Alzheimer's uh, and had like high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it is a serious disease, but as, I just want to like be very clear that that you know I totally agree with you. I think that the reaction or the policy has been worse. You know, the cure the 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 cure is worse than the disease sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was also seeded with five G at the by the united states government clearly, at the wuhan clearly. at the wuhan military games yeah they put it into pangolin dna and then of course the chinese can't help themselves because pangolin is fucking delicious i'd eat a pangolin what? burger i would I mean, eat a pangolin i i i'm laying down my marker i i would eat pangolin so would i i would too i would too 100 yeah i mean they look delicious it's it looks like a walking steak to be honest Actually, you know what a a pangolin looks like? It looks like you could just sort of like pick off pieces of it, you know, like a pineapple. You can just sort of like pull off a juicy chunk of pangolin. That's not that's not how it works. So I I won't say who I I know. I know someone who's eating pangolin. (laughs) I know someone who's eating pangolin. (laughs) He's eating pangolin and he knows that this is not I've not eaten pangolin. I was supposed (laughs) to have eaten pangolin. I was supposed to have eaten pangolin. But like I got sandbagged. So so it was a um a wedding that uh should it should have gotten an invitation to and like didn't for a variety of well, I mean like we got the invitation, but like it was not forwarded to us. And so I learned this year, this would have been like uh eight years ago. I learned this year that we could have gone and could have eaten pangolin. Uh, because my mother-in-law was there and did and like what it it's just like it's just like a soup i I, i'm sure it like tastes like has no flavor and no taste but whatever she did say that it was like the tenderest meat that she's ever eaten and she's not given to hyperbole uh, yeah i mean i i choose to eat things by how outraged people will get if i mention it except i won't eat monkey brains I find that people are a little um, annoyed with the idea that I might eat dog, but uh, you know we have dog here to on the menu. 
I'd have, You'd eat dog? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't eat my dog. I feel, I feel like my dog gets a pass just because, I don't know, we're kind of close now. But um, That's very clannish of you. He's juicy. My dog is juicy. I'll say that. Uh, but no, they do sell it on the street here. Um, old people, you can find it maybe um, one out of 100 places you look, you could find the dog in Chengdu for sale. For, I mean, meat uh, for meat on the on the street. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to outrage. Right? Yeah, I'm going to outrage some PETA types. But yeah, I, mean, I, I ordered I ordered dog once at a um, a Korean restaurant on a university campus in Beijing. And like I thought about it for months and then I just like sit down and I say, okay, I want it. And the waitress disappeared for a little bit and then came back pretty quickly. It's like, we're, we're out. And I just said like, there are dogs all around this restaurant. Yeah. You're just being walking lazy around, like freely walking around. Like you yep. can't tell me you're out of dog meat. Yeah. Freely and walking they, around they without, a, they should be, frankly, they should be afraid. At all yeah. times, <laughs> it's too bold. The dogs are too bold now. How about, how about yeah, so maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of loop back into crypt, crypto. <laughs> Dog coin. Dog coin. Winter, oh, yeah. you, you had it. You had a big win on Dog coin. So yeah. So I mean, did you sell I, too I, early? Uh, probably not. I I haven't checked it lately, but I I, I sold probably like weighted average around five point five cents, and I bought in at one point one, and I think that was like over like a twenty four or thirty two hour span or something. So I literally had five x in a day. Uh, I was hesitant to bring it up in various forums like on Urban and stuff because there were a lot of people dissing the the Doge pump, but or Doge pump or whatever. But you know. Uh, we all, I think, I, well, I bought actually, four, four tweet, right? So this like is the that. problem. This is the problem with people's that attitudes. Like if, if you're making money, who cares how you do it within, within yeah. certain boundary. But I mean, I just looking at crypto, obviously, you, you know, there, there are bad ways to make, but I mean, like, look, you, you, you made money on Dogecoin. like own it. That's great. No one should judge you. We, we talked about up. you on the podcast, actually. You were the guy we were talking about. I was telling, I was, I, I think I was telling young men uh, that they were too, they were too um, inexperienced to be messing around with Dogecoin because we have these friends who've been in the crypto game since, you know, 2011, who are who were more than willing to take their money off it if they're just going to leave it on the table. Nobody wants to like, you know, burn some some kid for hundred thousand dollars but if they're just gonna leave money on the table my friend as i said my friends will take your money yeah i figured that so might have might have been a reference to me but yeah that was a reference to you <laughs> yeah, absolutely i mean i guess like on that thought if we're gonna get serious for a minute you know there's a lot of people out there who haven't been through a crypto bull or a crypto winter and they're out there trying to day trade or trying to momentum trade at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing, you don't have a ton of money, I'd say just like buy Bitcoin and, and, and hold. If you know what you're doing and you kind of know which, which uh, the altcoins are good, I'd still buy and hold those. I wouldn't try and trade them. I'm not saying I don't trade. Obviously, I did the, the, the dope coin trade and made money in that and I've lost money on trades too. But at the end of the day, like you can get caught up in the swings and that fear and greed cycle dominates you. 
And uh, I didn't really get to the full story of the Bitcoin, but I, I sold a lot of Bitcoin in 2017 before it went nuts. I sold all my Bitcoin before it went nuts. And, um, you know, I'd been in the game a long time and still didn't, didn't clock that I, I needed to not do that. So, you know, anyone who's listening should benefit from that and just think like, okay, what's the big picture? Do you really need the money for something tomorrow? If you don't, why are you, why are you selling it? Just wait, you know, that's my serious advice for the young people out there. The, um, but like you were not sitting down and saying like, okay, I really like the tokenomics of Doge. This yeah. this fundamentally seems like a good. I mean, like why why did you ape in when you did? So there was some there was some buzz on on the Twitter on a Doge pump, and a mutual of mine had actually either you know what I think he had wrote about Doge going to a dollar, and I I, I might have DM'd him, and I, and I was like I, I won't reveal who it was, but I was like this is ridiculous, like why would I buy Doge? And he was like no 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 like. I don't know, look at this chart and, you know, it's totally happening. And it was kind of a lark for me. I didn't put a, a ton of money, but it was enough money that my trade was was very profitable. So, I, you know, I was like, all right, I'll buy a bunch of Doge at 1.1 cents. Um, and literally, like, I don't know, it was like within the day or something, like Musk did this tweet or it was like <laughs> the day after or something, right? And I was like, holy crap. It went up to like 7 cents. And I think I so I started selling and I sold between like seven and three cents. And I think my average was about 5.5. So it was one of my best trades ever because it was a, a one or two day trade, basically. But I just- That's, yeah, a, feel I, good, that's a feel good story. Yeah, it's a feel good story, but I just aped in with no no fundamentals. Like I know, I know what Doge is and it's, you know, it's just a ridiculous meme coin, right? There's no- It's micro, no, no, it's my, it enables micro payments. <laughs> So uh, do you want to disclose <laughs> your dog coin position then? What's your do- yeah, exactly. I don't, know any, I don't I don't know. I don't own any. But you know, <laughs> I do think I just want to be a devil's advocate. Everything's a meme. To to some degree that's true. I wanna say, um my I you know, people might especially people who haven't traded very much, they might get the wrong impression hearing your um hearing your winning dog coin story. But I'll tell you, uh I, I consider myself to be fairly moderately successful, I think, moderately successful at trading. Um, and even I, I, well, I shouldn't say even I, but when I got started uh, doing that, um, I was telling you earlier, Winter, about about um, breaking some of my hard and fast rules, which is one time, you know, the one time that I have a drink and start trading, uh, it went south, which is to say that, you know, you you so anyway the I, I you know I traded into something for like a, a one one Ethereum and then watched it go up five hundred percent or something like that. Got really excited, did not have my full on um you know mental faculties to sell at the top and then watch myself lose I don't know, something like ten thousand dollars or something like that within the space of like uh f- half an hour. I, I, I just want to say that I, I want to tell that story because uh, you know for every for every um, Elon Musk um, tweet fueled Doge win, there's probably like a million. I had too much to drink that day and lost ten thousand dollars 
stories. Uh, and it's not just drinking. I mean, it's just, you know, any, any one of these coins can do that to you. If you ape in foolishly without yeah. having done like fundamental analysis and, and doing some stop loss and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I broke one of my rules. You know, I have hard and fast rules about, um, trading. One of which is never do it when you're drinking. And I broke the rule and I got burned. Anyway, mine is to useful. buy stuff that winter is selling. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Never buy anything he's buying. Always buy what he's selling. No, that, that works. And and as I think I've told both of you, I, I refuse to do research in, in any way, shape, or form. I just buy stuff that, that my bros are buying. Um, yeah, same. I call that the, the that's the Chad buys. buys no, that's great, man. I think you make more money off of my research than I do. Actually, I'm quite certain that you make more money off of my research than I do. So one day I'm going to hit you up for like, a, I don't know, a beer or something. But uh, 100% sure. 100%. <laughs> I enjoy it though. I mean, really, it's not like I, I, I didn't I didn't know I was going to enjoy it so much. When I, I started like quite late, I think, um, like uh, at the beginning or b just before the beginning of DeFi summer, really. Uh, so I got started. I got started quite quite late, but I really got into it. And so now uh, I spend my days like a crack addict, you know, looking for new ways, you know, basically new ways to print money. Number go up. Yeah, but I only do fundamental analysis, which is to say, I'm not interested in in like you know 15 minute charts or anything. Uh, yeah. I only I'm only interested. I mean, it, c coming from like the legacy financial world, I I do think it's hilarious how much like the infrastructure and there's like business related reasons for this, but it, like all of the apps and like exchanges and everything are exclusively set up. Like their tools are exclusively set up to help a 15 minute trader. Right. I mean, like you can't yeah. even get price charts that are like longer than three months in some places. Um, and it's like really, really, amusing it's also very hard to find out what your performance has been like you you have to basically set up your own excel spreadsheets and everything like they they do not want you they don't want you to have any idea how well you're doing beyond number go up so like don't don't see how much has gone to fees or anything like that don't see how you've kind of done versus any sort of an index or anything so um yeah yeah, tell us how you got into Urbit. This is a good uh, look. Check out my segue skills. Did you like that? How did you get into Urbit? What do you do on Urbit? What's your deal? You are one of the Urbit Asia OGs, right? Yeah, yeah, OGs. That's right. Um, you know, I got into Urbit because because you guys did. Uh, like 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 I get into most of my investments. Um, so I knew what Urbit was for a long for a long 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 time, um, but I hadn't. I hadn't ever gotten near an Urbit asset or used Urbit um, until, you know, we and, and some friends of ours were, were, were talking about it and decided to to, to get some assets and, and play with it. Um, I, even though I've only been on Urbit for, what is it, about a year? Um, and yeah. There were probably a few months hiatus I had in the middle at some point, but I've, I've seen tremendous growth on it over the past year, and and there's so many active groups that just just have um, communities with very very smart people on there. Um, so I'm loving it. It has real like Web 1.0 like 
IRC Freenet kind of vibes, if you know what that is, or BBS vibes even. Oh yeah, we've talked about that as well. You know, yeah, you know John Lester, I think um, Pathfinder. He's yeah. he's been. We we talked with him about that. How it's got that very um, sort of early internet BBS yeah. feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I grew up on BBSs, right? Uh, so for me, that feels very much at home. Uh, and I, and I like the atmosphere there. I like the people there. I like, I like landscape. Um, uh, so in terms of urban as an investment, you know, I like the asset, um, not going to put all my home equity in it or something. It's, it's an asymmetric kind of bet, but you know, it's a cool platform. It's cool technology and there's cool people. So that's enough for me. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack. <laughs>